Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a journalist and editor. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Today, I'm joined by Peter Grunert, the editor of Lonely Planet magazine. In fact, Peter is the editor of 13 editions of the magazine around the world, and each is imbued with that spirit of adventure and a cultural understanding that makes it one of my favorite travel magazines. And as a result of our chat, I've added about 10 new destinations to my bucket list. We'll be talking about so many great places from Bhutan and India to Uruguay and Australia and many more, which is why this is my first long haul episode. So here is a real deep dive into the world of travel from one of its top experts. I hope you enjoy it. So we're in the central London offices of Lonely Planet in Barcelona room, feeling very inspired already. Welcome, Peter, to the Travel Diaries podcast. Thank you, Holly. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? Yeah, excellent. Thank you. We're going to go through the Travel Diaries of your life so far. So looking forward to hearing the places that you've been. Let's kick off with chapter one, and that is your earliest travel memory. My earliest memory... Uh, is is filtered in the way actually that so it was from when I was four years old uh, and in the way that children filter out so many details about a location we're not thinking about the culture necessarily or the look of the landscape but very specific things prod your memory mm-hmm. and so for me so we went to Wales mm-hmm. and having done some research I realized it was in Gwynedd and I was there on the 16th of August 1977 and I'll tell you the reason I know this that's the day that Elvis died <laughs> So sorry to start this on a maudlin note, but I was in the kitchen in a farmhouse in a very rainy and muddy part of Wales, um, and the, it came on the radio on the news. My 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 mother, father, my uncle and auntie were there, and they were all looking close to tears and horrified. And the news came that somebody called Elvis had died. Into a four year old, I was who is Elvis? What a strange name. Um, simultaneously that was also the in that kitchen at that moment was the first time I ever ate chips as in french fries so um, weirdly (laughs) they're they're two memories and I just remember a lot of mud. Was Wales a place that you went to um, a lot growing up? Was travel a big feature in your childhood growing up? No no that's the answer Um, so my family background is, I don't know, I'm kind of interested in the psychology of why we didn't travel mm-hmm. um, and what's led me to <laughs> work for Lonely Planet to make my career as a travel writer and editor. Um, so my grandfather was a very adventurous person. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are all sorts of family legends, but one of them goes that at the age of 12, he ran away from his home in Hull, ended up in South America working on cargo ships. At the age of 16, came back to the UK, lied about his age, joined the Royal Army Air Corps, was flying fighter planes in the Second World War, was flying flying boats, uh, protecting the um, Atlantic convoys coming in from the USA. Wow. Um, and then in the very early days of airlines, so through into the late 1940s, all through the 1950s, he was an airline pilot. And my father uh, grew up living all around the world because in those days, if you were a pilot for BOAC, as my grandfather was, you often were stationed in different locations. Mm-hmm. Um, so my father, when he was growing up, he spent time in Sydney, 
Tokyo, Honolulu, Calcutta, San Francisco. He led this incredibly international existence. Unbelievable. Which, to my mind, growing up in a sleepy village on the south coast of England just sounded so exciting. and So exotic. Uh, frankly, he always made it sound exciting. But for him, he reached a point in adulthood where he felt like he'd traveled enough. Mm-hmm. And he actually, I feel, wanted a settled existence for his family. And he saw some of the benefits of that. Uh, so we grew up in a village called West Wittering in, in West Sussex. Oh, no way. Which is beautiful. Um, beautiful place. Nice, yeah. I was literally just there last oh, really? week. Yeah. <laughs> well, my family still live there. And um, you know, it's great for kite surfing and yacht sailing, those kind of things. And it was very nice. It was great for sort of micro adventures as a child, always being outdoors. Were you an adventurous child? Did you have the wanderlust from an early age, would I you say? I think so, yeah. I, I think so. I, I spent a lot of time staring at photos, staring at uh, pictures all, all about places, exciting places in the world. Chapter two is the first place you fell in love with. What would that be? Okay, so continuing our theme... Um, the most exotic place I went to as a child uh, was Brittany in France. Just over there on the channel. <laughs> Finally, I was allowed a passport <laughs> at about the age of eight years old. Um, and we went on a family camping trip uh, in somewhere called Morgas-sur-Mer. And um, I, d- I just remember this spectacular beach with these amazing rock pools just full of colorful fish and anem- anemones Uh, sea urchins uh, for me as a young child it was so exciting Uh, and eating crepes out there as well you know chocolate and um and and going off exploring again a filtered memory of this but i remember lots of hedgehogs and lots of toads these are the things that i went (laughs) off in hedgerows and found so camping it's something i feel i'd love it's a place i would love to take my daughter back to now yeah and just to relive some of the nostalgia it's absolutely beautiful part of the world and at what point then having studied zoology did you end up being a travel writer and editor (laughs) Uh, i'm not sure i should admit to this but um i had i had dual passions um so i've always loved wildlife always been interested in it I've always been incredibly nerdy about cars as well. I like uh-huh. machines, actually. I like mechanical um, devices of all sorts, watches, planes, cars. Um, I really like old cars. I have an old Mercedes now that I drive around in. Um, uh, so actually, my first job was for Top Gear, BBC Top Gear. Um, and I spent 12 years at Top Gear magazine. Oh, that's I was a long deputy stint. editor for five years. Um, And I finally left that world, actually, of road testing cars and writing about cars when the BBC sent me to Mumbai in India. And uh, if you don't mind me going into a segue onto the next chapter. Sure, please segue away. uh, Segue away. I think perhaps you you told me to have a think about the trip where I learned the most about myself. Absolutely, chapter three. Thank you very much. So um, if you can call it a trip, I spent quite a long time in Mumbai Mm -hmm. and I was helping the BBC to launch Top Gear in India, which was a highly eccentric experience in itself. And um, so through that work, I got to meet lots of different people in India. I also got to travel a lot in India over six months mm. six um, months you're six out months there. out there yeah wow. um and it was actually at the end of that that i was offered the job by the bbc which at the time owned lonely planet to set up their magazines oh, I um, see. so that was the link there but for me i got into driving myself around india which is quite an unusual thing to do brave yeah i think i'm such a bad passenger 
that I, I trust my own driving so much more than anyone else's that even though it was wild and chaotic over a period of months living there, I realized as people see in India, there is an order in chaos. Uh, and I felt actually there are so many people wanting to help you out in India. So there's such approachability in general, uh, wherever you go, that I felt people were constantly there ready to help me. So I, I found it um, quite a release to drive myself around. I did have a strange experience. Uh, one of the assignments I was involved in was meeting a gentleman who had imported one of the first new Lamborghinis to, to India. Um, he lived in a town called Pune big city in fact and he was driving he wanted to drive this yellow lamborghini but the roads were full of potholes and uh, he had a chauffeur in a brand new rolls royce who went in front of this lamborghini and we weren't allowed to take photos of of this scene but in effect we drove at 20 miles an hour everywhere and the chauffeur's job in this four hundred thousand pound rolls royce was to let's say ask the rickshaw drivers to move out the way and oh not bash God. into the lamborghini as, as this guy came came through so that was a surreal experience <laughs> um and I made a lot of friends in India, and I, I felt I had uh, the the traffic in the south of Mumbai is famously terrible. It, the city's on a peninsula, and mm. they're quite narrow access points to the business districts and downtown. Um, so I spent a lot of time getting from my flat to my office. Um, I was also there during the time of um, the monsoons coming through. And so I spent a long time in traffic jams, in the rain, staring out the window at all of the random things that happen at the roadside in a big Indian city. But I'll say beyond finding a trust in order through chaos, which made me a much more relaxed person when I came back to the UK, um, there was a, a family I, I saw every day as I went to work. There was a school bus parked in a lay-by, and I saw this family who were street dwellers. They slept underneath this bus, but they had a, a young young boy and a young girl in their family, and, and I saw them washing their children every day. A shopkeeper gave them a, a big bucket of hot soapy water, and I could see the mother washing the children. Mm. While the little boy was getting ready, the girl was already in her uniform usually, and she'd sit there with a different textbook almost every day. And just, I think sometimes as an outsider, I didn't really understand until I saw that about what social climbing means in India. Mm. And even at times, if you're a street dweller, so many people in cities in India are on a journey somewhere else. And I really had that feeling of this family valued education yeah. as an incredibly precious asset. It just made me challenge my own perceptions about taking things for granted. And a lot of people say that when they travel. Absolutely. Of course, perhaps it's a cliche about India to say that. But for me, it was it made me so grateful for what I have. It made me want to tell my daughter about that experience. Mm. Um yeah, so I, I was glad for that. What were the kind of some standout experiences of living in that country? I mean, for mm. people who haven't traveled there before, in fact, I've never been to India. So okay. what's it like? So I suppose it's fair to say uh, before I started traveling, I had an, uh, a, a nervousness about getting ill, about what can go wrong. Uh, but I have traveled to so many different countries now. And by the time I went to India, I had obviously traveled quite a lot. Um, I'm almost too casual about these things, I'd say. I'm also a very social person. So what I loved about India was how 
forward a lot of my acquaintances were um there, there were none of no glossing over you know if you're looking a bit funny that day if your hair's all over the place then your colleagues will grab it and say what's wrong with you you know you, why, why are you looking so overweight you need to sort yourself out and, and actually uh, and how tactile a lot of people I found that quite um uh relaxing to be around once you get used to it um probably peak the peak of all of that for me was in a festival called the Ganesh Chaturthi which is um well there's a moment they call Visajan, which is where almost the patron god if you like of of Mumbai of Bombay is is Ganesh mm-hmm. and uh for for Hindus obviously um and people in their households they have a plaster of Paris statue of Ganesh but some people who live in large apartment blocks all club together and have these huge plaster statues of Ganesh made and painted and they carry them down to the ocean during this festival and they release them out into the sea and there's a sense of renewal through the release of Ganesh into the ocean Um, millions of people come on the streets during this time so it's a ritual that they it's a ritual they go through but it's a really happy it's a very happy ritual there's fireworks and you know just like holy there's colorful powder being thrown around um, some people are a bit tipsy, let's say. We went down to Chaupati, which is one of the main beaches in South Mumbai. And there were we re- heard there were 300,000 people just on this one beach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just started to rain a bit. As I said, it was around the time of the monsoons. So I put my umbrella up. And then just suddenly I realized that there were five men hugging me. And it was because I was the only one with an umbrella in the vicinity. And there was just no uh, reluctance by those people to make use of my umbrella with me. And they were just all hugging me. And I'm just looking at them thinking, all right, I'll go with this. This is fine. Enjoy the umbrella. Why should I selfishly stand in the corner somewhere? So it's the people that really stood out to you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I guess. And the food, actually, I really love spicy food. And we didn't eat a lot of spicy food in West Wittering growing up. So perhaps that's my own little rebellion as well there. But um, so when you go back uh, to India, what would you order? Gosh, well, if I'm in Mumbai, I would go, uh, I hope it's still there. Actually, there's a restaurant I used to love called Britannia. Mm-hmm. So Britannia was run by a very elderly gentleman who is uh, of a community that they call the Parsis, who left, in effect, what is Iran now. So he he made a dish called chicken berry pulao, uh, which is it's a pulao. So it's got it's got these um, barberries in it, um, and the spicy chicken is kind of like a biryani, really, I suppose. Mm. But it was fun, you know. It was, it was really a really fun place. And then you were saying that while you were having spent your time out in India working on the Top Gear Mag, that was at the time that you then transitioned to Lonely Planet. That's right. Yeah. So um, my boss, who was one of the bosses of the BBC, actually got a bit drunk with me in a hotel bar um, and and said that he was en route to Melbourne, Australia to meet Tony and Maureen Wheeler, who were the founders of Lonely Planet yeah. back in the early 1970s. Uh, and he, he was there to set up a deal with them to partially purchase Lonely Planet. So that's the point at which we discussed Lonely Planet's got a huge heritage of making brilliant guidebooks the leading guidebook publisher in the world but wouldn't it be amazing if Lonely Planet could make travel magazines as well and uh, not just help people to facilitate their travels but to do more to inspire their travels um, so I really saw how storytelling could could make a difference there 
Mm. Um, and did you go, I mean, we all did, right? We all grew up with Lonely Planet guides. So are there any that are very well leafed in from your childhood or your, your youth? I think the, the guide that led me furthest astray in my youth was, was the Japan guide. Um, I'd always been quite obsessed with Japan and I, I liked um, anime and manga. I was, I was excited to go to Japan. I, I liked Japanese cars as well. So, um, yeah, I, I took a Lonely Planet guide a couple of times uh, to Japan. And, and it's, it's a country I'm, uh, I feel you, you can only scratch the surface of the culture in Japan on each visit. And, yeah. and it's... There's so much to begin to understand and discover. Looking at Instagram, for example, I'm quite a visual person. I really enjoy photography. So I might use Instagram as a planning tool just to get a sense of what things look like, but only in those lighting conditions in that place with that. So what, looking uh, at the happening. location, the tagged location, and then seeing kind of what people are doing in that location. Yeah, I'm interested Frankly, I'm interested in the brilliant pictures on Instagram and the dreadful ones as well, because they give yeah. me a sense of, of um, who are the highly skillful photographers I know on Instagram, yeah, yeah. but who are the, <laughs> who's giving a, uh, a less filtered view, let's say, which isn't necessarily always more authentic. Some people underrepresent just how staggeringly beautiful a place is in their photography. With the uh, dawn of social media and the popularity of Instagram, does that affect the kind of places that you choose to cover within the magazine now? Are you looking at places more through uh, what would make a good photo for somebody or a traveller thinking that way too? Well, it's an interesting question, and I'll, I'll talk specifically for our magazine, our magazines. So mm -hmm. we have 13 editions of our magazine in countries all around the world. So there are different cultural takes in each of those locations. What is an inspiring photograph? What is an inspiring destination? I think it's for us to offer a degree of originality. Um, and if we are trying to take photographs in a place we'd hope we would inspire our readers to go there and photograph those places as well yeah but we are very wary of certain kinds of over tourism which is such a, a topic at the moment that, that we're all discussing um we don't want to typically be prescriptive about don't go to saint mark's square in venice we don't want to say that but we want to arm the traveler with options to say, if you go there at that time as that big cruise ship's coming in, it may be rammed and that may not be for you. And local people sometimes may find that very difficult to cope with. Mm -hmm. Infrastructure may strain. There is this other neighborhood that's 15 minutes walk away that has these beautiful buildings, has all of this culture, has a sense of local life, which if that is appealing to you as a traveler, we're just telling you it's there as well. I say this having been to Venice last autumn with, with my daughter and seen the beauty of St. Mark's Square and the Basilica there. But we stayed in Canareggio, which is just around the corner. And we were glad for that side to the city mm. as well and felt mm. very privileged to see that. Mm -hmm. I actually felt quite annoyed, I will say this, about how infrequently on Instagram, amongst different travellers or in travel media, anyone bothers to just go that 15 minutes further over. But I guess that's my job to put those options out there. Speaking of beautiful places like Venice, uh, chapter four is your all-time favourite destination. What would that be? Well, I started earlier by saying to you, Holly, that my father inspired me a lot when I was growing up by um, sharing photographs from his childhood mm -hmm. he spent two years in in Australia and he showed me these amazing 1950s tiny little photos 
uh, printed in Kodachrome. So they had this amazing bleached out sort of pastel colors going on, which I just found so atmospheric. Yeah. Um, talking about fishing trips and sharks circling around, uh, you know, where he lived in Sydney and this area called Vaucluse at the end of their garden and, you know, going off looking for lizards and all sorts, you know, guanas, all sorts of things out in the bush, going on a big drive with his father into the outback. I found these things just so exciting. And I lived in, in uh, rural West Sussex, as we said. So for me, early in my career, 10 years ago at Lonely Planet, um, going to Australia was was, was a, a huge moment for me. Um, so I, I wrote a feature about traveling in South Australia, it was, it was such a privilege to, to be there. Um, and so I traveled around and it was about meeting different characters who've chosen to live in this extremely remote environment and quite different environments. So what is South Australia like in contrast? Okay. to, and, and what are the major kind of cities that we might know in that part of Australia? So we flew into Adelaide. Adelaide, right. Um, and we quite quickly left Adelaide and we went up the coast first and foremost right. uh, to a place called Port Lincoln. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we went into the outback uh, we we met all these ranchers. We met some um, Aboriginal people who took us on a bush walk. And actually, before I hype up my own adventurous spirit too far, I'm going to make a confession, which Go is on. we we set up a what I thought was a bush tucker experience. So I thought I'd walk for one or two days with a Aboriginal guide, and he'd show me, you know, witch tea grubs and other you know other things that would um Ala, I'm a celebrity me. yeah I'm <laughs> yeah. a celebrity maybe I'd watch that <laughs> yeah. too much so he turned up in a brand new Land Rover Discovery and um and he lowered the tailgate and he got out a bottle of wine and a picnic hamper and he said I've baked you some scones and I've been out gathering it's it's the Kwandong season so Kwandongs are these fruits that grow they have an amazing taste. Uh, which well, I've never heard of them. What so it's a they? kind of fruit um, which the, they grow in a tree, I understand. And it, I describe the taste as somewhere between a mandarin orange and a guava, if that means anything. Sort of hot, right. like a tropical fruit sort of taste. And he'd made jam from these. He'd baked these scones. So it's cream scones and guandong jam. <laughs> we sat on the tailgate watching the sunset and feasting on scones. So that's about as... <laughs> extreme as my um, bush tucker experience went um, we, we ended up in a place called kuba pd so kuba pd is is well known for being an opal mining town and you get these people who live there who lease a plot and it's that whole thing about what is it to be a prospector to, to try and seek your fortune in this desert environment everywhere you go there are signs saying don't walk backwards because they were just individual very deep mine shafts sunk all over the place and it gets incredibly hot there of course during the yeah. daytime so a lot of these people actually have built underground dwellings so we actually went and stayed in a hotel which was underground and we met people who live in this environment so. without any windows uh, yeah absolutely yes yeah. so you need the insulation of the ground yeah. they're quite deep underground some of them um that's how people what was the, choose to uh, live and often don't make their fortune uh, that's the reality mm. uh, was, the hotel, was the hotel busy and booked up <laughs> <laughs> it was a pretty strange flight on the way there there were big signs about check in your explosives and handguns before you get on the flight you know? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people carting dynamite out i guess <laughs> yeah. 
How about your favorite city? What would that be? Okay, so returning to Japan,、um, I had a two week holiday with my wife in Tokyo. I, I really like the film Lost in Translation. Oh,、so、yeah. We determined that we would、um, do a complete follow along of Lost in Translation. So, so we、cool. stayed in the Park Hyatt、um, in the hotel that they stayed in. We went to the bar where Bill Murray sat there chatting to Scarlett Johansson. We went to the.、Um, It's called the、uh, Akihabara Electric Light District. We went to Harajuku, where there are all the different sort of tribes who went to a Snoopy superstore. And anyway, we really <laughs> slightly obsessively followed it. It was so much fun. It was brilliant. And、um, I think what I most love about that film is, is, is an atmosphere that you get in a very different place when you're jet lagged. When it's sort of night, often nighttime, there's that fog in your brain, and, and so much is coming at you, and, and slowly the mist clears, and you start to settle into the rhythm of a place. And that's definitely how it felt for us in Tokyo. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50. Luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.comslash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com code LISTEN. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK, and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels. Even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom, and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra. Income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the travel diaries. Speaking of hotels,、um, what would you say is your all time favorite hotel? So, if I had to say the one hotel I'd most like to return to and had the best experience in, it was called Mashpee Lodge. So, Mashpee Lodge is, is in Ecuador.、Uh, it's in the cloud forest of Ecuador, which is a very special environment. It's at higher altitude than normal rainforest.、Um, and this place, just the wildlife comes to you there. 
Uh, it was actually built on the location of a former logging camp. Uh, and the owner of the hotel bought that site and demolished the logging camp and built this incredible modern boutique hotel in the middle of the jungle. Yeah. Um, and the guide who took us around had used to work in the logging camp, trying to survive through working in deforestation. Um, but the owner of the hotel realized that this guy, over the many years he'd lived in this forest, had built up such incredible knowledge uh, of mm. the plants and the creatures there. And what kind of things did he see? Well, huge bugs, actually. There was a thing called a Hercules beetle, which was the... I took a photo of it. It was the size of my notebook. Um, giant oh, my. moths and leaf insects. Eight-legged things. Um, you know what? Actually, sadly, I didn't see a tarantula, but I would very much like to have. Um, sadly? <laughs> yeah, I love all the creepy crawlies. Oh, do you? Um, oh, gosh. That's the one thing I like to avoid when I'm traveling. <laughs> we saw these quite spooky animals called tyras. So tyras are like... Uh, giant black ferrets and they came out the jungle and they look I don't know they have a sort of malevolent glint in their eye but they were actually just looking for fruit to feed on there were a lot of hummingbirds as well and just just such they're so incredibly beautiful and just the sound again the sound that their wings make when they're right by your ears sounds amazing it's a lovely place one to add to the bucket list yeah and how about in the kind of spirit of Lonely Planet's original ethos, a destination on a shoestring? Um, if I go back to the origins of Lonely Planet, Tony and Maureen Wheeler um, wrote really a pamphlet, which was Across Asia on the Cheap. So as, as students, uh, they, they bought a mini. In, this was in 1972, I think. They drove to Kabul, as you could in those days. They sold their mini for a profit, and then they continued overland through all different means of transport. And they went uh, through Southeast Asia, India, ended up in, in Australia. And that's where they wrote this first guidebook. And uh, India was one of our first ever guidebooks um, after that, as the company got started. And back then, we'd have said India is one of the world's greatest on a shoestring destinations. And still I say that. I have to say India just gives travelers of all types such huge diversity of experience and hugely varying budget options as well mm. and i personally feel the richness really of, of being in india comes from absorbing the culture and being in the environment more than anything and for me although there's some amazing palaces you can stay in and some of them are actually really affordable in rajasthan for example there's something just so special about being in different parts of india and i should say i feel india is more of a continent almost than a country because each state has such a diverse character mm. and if i had to say my favorite states uh if i were to be there as a budget traveler now i'd love to return to kerala oh yeah um there's something about the, the tropical abundance in that place i'd say it's a very uh, watery part of india it isn't is, it exactly yes and you're right so you know we went out on the backwaters uh we went on these sort of rice barges called ketuvalem and, and we traveled around in canoes as well with villagers went fishing and seeing oh. kingfishers and otters and i'm back to the wildlife but uh all of those experiences are manageable on a very low budget and the food are oh, just the um the prawns giant prawns we're eating just the freshness of of the spices um, the coconut in in the food so much there um and is it a good it. entry point maybe for somebody who might think that some of the cities of india could be a bit overwhelming is it a good kind of entry point to getting a taste of yeah what india much. has to offer that's a very good point 
Um, there is just a more relaxed general atmosphere in the state, I'd say. Again, mm. it's a generalization. I should mm. be careful with that. But getting out into the backwaters, uh, you'd really feel the pace winding down. Chapter five um, is your hidden gem. Well, I'm sure there are quite a few hidden gems that you have uncovered along the way. Uh, what stands out? Okay, so if you don't mind, I'm going to hit you with two. Oh, please. One very close to home and one very far away. Great. So I'll start distant. So I, I went to Bhutan and reported from Bhutan. Oh, I'm so jealous. Um, and it, it had been hovering around the top of my bucket list for a long time. And I'm quite strange in as much as I like to keep things in front of me as some kind of motivation and incentive. So yeah. I resisted discovering Bhutan for myself uh, for many years because I wanted to keep it hanging there. But finally, uh, I got around to it. Um, now, Bhutan didn't really allow tourists in until about 1975. Um, and still, there is a minimum cost. In certain months, it's $200 a day. In certain other months, yes. it's $250. It's not, not easy to visit, is it? It's, it's very hard. Yeah, you're right. And, and even just accessing Bhutan involves an adventurous uh, flight. Um, the, the main airport is at quite high altitude, and there's only one kind of airliner that's been adapted with special engines to fly and land in a short space coming in at high altitude. So most people come from Kathmandu. Uh, I think you can come in from India, from uh, Kolkata as well. Uh, so we flew in via Kathmandu. Uh, you fly over Everest. So already just to see Everest looming up is mind-blowing. I was reading about the same experience uh, the other day and, and somebody said seeing Everest for the first time is like meeting a celebrity and being starstruck. And it felt like that for me seeing it. So yeah, you land at the airport and it's, uh, it's meant to be like quite a hair-raising landing, isn't it, between the peaks? Yeah, right? we didn't manage it the first time. We had to do a sort of a roundabout and come oh in God, and take aim the second time. I, I kind of enjoyed it in a weird way. Yeah. Um, it's a country where a lot of people in their day-to-day -day lives wear national costume. The men wear an outfit called a go, uh, which is a kind of tunic, a sort of... Um, checked tunic with giant cuffs although they'll often wear that with nike trainers or you know this doesn't quite get to the, the colour shoes it can be a lot of them are more i'm seeing maroons and dark grays a bit more sort of sedate colors um and and it's a culture it's a kingdom and it's a culture that's heavily influenced by uh, a version of buddhism a version of tibetan buddhism so you're in the himalayas and with with this tibetan buddhism that, that infuses so much um of the culture whilst you're there uh, so i was thinking about some of the experiences i had a lot a lot of what you do there is visiting what are called zongs zongs are fortified monasteries um so and some of them stretch beyond medieval times. They're 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 ancient. These white, Amazing. very geometric, um, slightly sort of Chinese influence um, in in the gables and the pantiles on the roofs. Um, in, in their architecture, they have these just incredibly beautiful frescoes painted inside them. Um, sort of tigers and mythical beasts. I found that so beautiful to be there with yeah. the yak butter lamps burning and you know, giant sort of horns being blown and, and monks 
Um, although the boy monks we met when we were we did a lot of trekking and you're pretty much constantly at high altitude so for me it took quite a while to acclimatize yeah so my heart was beating away constantly but we were meeting these boy monks and of course they're just asking me about premiership football and what's going on with Manchester United and the power of Manchester United has reached <laughs> into the furthest least known corner of the Himalayas amazing we we chose to there's a monastery called the Tiger's Nest which is the most photographed site so we trekked past that and we kept going and we got to about four and a half thousand meters um, and we went from very hot and sweaty, lower down at about two and a half thousand meters. It was very bright, intense sunlight to heavy blizzards at the top. If you don't mind me briefly taking this in a slightly bawdy direction, I'll just say. So we were taken to lots of different farms as well as monasteries. And in rural houses, um, there's another form of painting that's that's kind of infamous for Bhutan. So the uh, patron saint of Bhutan is somebody called Drukpa Kinli. So Drukpa Kinli was, or Kinli was somebody who um, came to Bhutan promoting a certain kind of Buddhism. And his theory, hundreds of years ago when he came there, was to break down social conventions. And so people would be more imaginative about new teachings as well. So he'd get everybody drunk, he'd break wind, he'd have possibly romantic encounters with all kinds of women and that's how he spread his philosophy apparently but he's a kind right. of folk hero he's a sort uh-huh. of subject of laughter in Bhutan as well but he is revered on on a certain level and so in pretty much every rural farmhouse above the front door you'll see what is euphemistically termed as the magic thunderbolt of wisdom which is for, for want of a better term, it's an ornate phallus painted <laughs> above the doorway. I'll spare you the details, but it's highly anatomically correct. Um, and that's that's an auspicious sign. That's a sign of um, good luck, really, uh, that you see everywhere. Oh, that um, sounds charming. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's, honestly, it's such a reverential sort of place. Yeah. And the general demeanor is quite calm and measured and that vibe you get in mountain communities in so many parts of the world isn't it the happiest country in the world well there is this um that there was an objective set for the government to measure the success if you like of that country not just in gross domestic product but gross national happiness Mm. bhutan now is aiming by next year to become 100 percent organic as well so this remote and not so well-known place is actually arguably one of the most progressive countries in the world, I would suggest. And quality of life seems quite quite up there. It's true. We, we met some uh, Japanese tourists when we, we were there. And these people, I, I was asking our guide, you know, what brings them to Bhutan? And he said, well, for the people in this region of Bhutan we're in, partly they're interested in Buddhist culture and they see a connection to their own religion and culture there but also people who are struggling with fertility um, sometimes come there and they actually go to the temple that's Drukpa Kunli's uh, sort of number one temple dedicated to him. Mm-hmm. And so we did go to this place and we had a blessing. So um, the national sport of Bhutan is is um, archery. So we did some archery and I was blessed with a bow and arrow. And then this monk came along, sorry to go back to this, but came with a a wooden phallus and touched me on the head and said something's now going to happen I'm just going to tell you because it always does 
Um, so sorry, this is a personal point and not that this had crossed my mind beforehand, but I got in touch with my guide nine months later and said, much to our surprise, my wife has just had a child. Oh my God. And he said, well, you know, that that's amazing. That's auspicious. You know, know why that was, but you, you know, the tradition is your child's middle name has to be Kunli to <laughs> recognize the influence of the monk. Um, and is it? No, it's not. Oh, <laughs> my, no. my wife is having none of it. <laughs> but still, the thought was there. And how about the hidden gem that's Oh, yes, a bit the nearer. hidden gem, the hidden gem. So, because my wife comes from Bradford in West Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. I feel Bradford gets either overlooked or a bad press. Yeah. Um, and for me, you know, uh, I'm talking about having lived in India and traveled a lot in India. Some of the best South Asian cuisine I've eaten has been in Bradford. Mm-hmm. Um, also, as a southerner, I finally come round to admitting that fish and chips are better in the north of England. And <laughs> I'll put controversial. that down to controversial. <laughs> I'll put that down to the beef dripping um, that it's fried in. Um, and for me, also, um, just some of the architecture in Bradford, even though some of it's not very well looked after, some of the Victorian industrial architecture, I just find it so magnificent. Mm. And uh, what my favourite place just on the edge of Bradford is called Saltair. So there was a, a Victorian gentleman called Titus Salt who built arguably the most magnificent uh, industrial building to come out of the Industrial Revolution, which is Salt's Mill. Uh-huh. And the village he built around it with good sanitation and education. It was very progressive. It's called Saltair. And David Hockney, who's of local origin, became involved in the restoration of this mill. And a lot of his artworks are shown inside. Um, and now it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's been recognized by UNESCO. But like I say, I feel like a oh, lot of us yeah. Need who to add that to the to-do West list. Yorkshire don't know about yeah. it. It's a lovely village as well. There's you know, lovely cafes, vintage shops. Um, design shops Um, it's a place I I hugely enjoy visiting that's a great hidden gem thank you chapter six in contrast is the place that you'd never go back to well this place I've sworn I'll never go back to three times Uh, tells you something (laughs) yeah (laughs) I've been there five times sucker for punishment (laughs) sucker for punishment which is Tenerife and I don't want to sound snobbish but uh, as a student I'll just say I had some fairly grotty cheap package holidays and you know fun in their Nasty own way yeah the last time when we had a young child I thought look you know at a certain time of year in the spring when the weather's not good in the UK yet it's just so easy to get to there's no jet lag the weather's good so we did go back and I'm going to admit now that leaving things to the last minute came and bit me we were staring in part at an electricity pylon and in part at an abandoned building site. So it's just a mound of rust. Uh, Honestly, it was terrible. And it was raining as well, this place that's meant to be the most reliably bright and sunny place in February. Um, So it was a disaster. And just to say on Tenerife as well, uh, in terms of giving a place another chance, I actually bothered to go for a drive up Teade in the middle and the National Park in the middle. Yeah. You, you rise through the clouds. They're really different environments. It's an incredibly high mountain, this active, vol- I don't know if it's active, but this volcano anyway that's that's there in, in the centre, which is Spain's highest mountain. Um, and the roads are beautifully kept. Um, and then you're just driving through these lava fields. Um, I feel it's a side that a lot of package holiday makers don't get to see if they Mm. don't come away from a resort don't come away from a beach Uh, and yet within an hour's drive you're in the middle of the island 
Um, it's such a beautiful place. A friend of mine went there last week and was messaging me and saying, saying he it was, was really worth glad it. that they bothered. Yeah. So if you're in a really rubbish hotel, just drive to there yeah, and you'll be up happy. Mante <laughs> There's a cable car if you're really adventurous. You can go right to the top. As both um, a writer of travel journalism myself and a consumer of it, I've certainly experienced places being overhyped. What would you say is the most overhyped place? So a place that definitely on my first um, acquaintance with that city, I felt had been hugely overhyped was L.A. Really? Yeah. One of my favorite cities. Well, there you go. And so we can argue about this. Yeah. And you'll probably win because I will admit right now that it's a giant place. Yeah. And you need to get out and explore and have local connections it's about being in the right place and seeing the right things. I'm certain of that. But for me, my experience of getting there was straight to Hollywood, walking up Hollywood Boulevard, which is kind of rough and scruffy in places. And I don't know what I was expecting. Really. I went to Beverly Hills. Maybe I'd watched Pretty Woman one time too many. And I had some <laughs> 80s sort of version of what I expected from Beverly Hills. You know, I went to the Mondrian Hotel and hung around with all these people lounging around the pool and I don't know for me it just wasn't your left scene me cold um chapter seven then is your next big adventure what would that be well I am a wildlife obsessive mm-hmm. and feel that the remnants of my bucket list today are um, generally hooked around wildlife experiences mm-hmm. so I'm really looking forward to going to a country that's currently called Eswatini uh, but Eswatini until a year ago was called Swaziland. Oh. So it's a tiny country alongside South Africa and Mozambique. And it's the only absolute monarchy in Africa. So it has a king, uh, the king on his 50th birthday uh, last year, which was also the 50th anniversary of the country's independence from British colonial rule. Um, the king, to the surprise of most people, announced that he was changing the country's name. Uh, and Eswatini, I understand, is what the country is is actually known as in the local language, right. uh, Siswati. You can imagine it must have caused a few marketing problems for people, <laughs> yeah, let's yeah. say. But what I'm most looking forward to about that country is um, going in search of rhino. So the country is known for being brilliant at rhino conservation. Yeah. And they have incredibly rare black rhino there and they have white rhino as well and one of the things well there are two things i'm hoping to do one is to go horse riding on safari they have a particular large nature reserve that um doesn't have any very large predators in it so hoofed mammals the rare antelope and so on that live there and known for being very calm and easy to horse ride amongst um the other thing they specialize in is is walking experiences uh, where you approach rhino which i i my mind's boggling at how you do this but i think it says something about how well trained the guides are and how well they know the individual rhino oh wow what an amazing adventure i'm very jealous looking forward to it so i can't be in a room with you as a voracious travel reader and not ask what you think might be uh, next big destination for 2020. What, what tips could you give me? So my tip for a big destination that's also a small destination, a small country, is is Uruguay. Uruguay, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm really fascinated by Uruguay. So um, the country has a reputation, or I, I feel, for 
uh, being a very progressive place, welcoming to gay and lesbian travellers, um, also a country that's addressing sustainability in tourism in general, mm-hmm. um, more than a lot of South American countries. And for a, a very compact country, it offers a, a real breadth of experiences that you think about Argentina as an example of such a massive place, or Chile equally, a country that's so long um, and take uh, really costly to get around because it takes so long usually to fly between experiences. Whereas in Uruguay, you have some incredible vineyards, you have um, you know, brilliant food experiences, cultural dancing um, experiences, um, uh, and also really wonderful coastline as well. Yeah. Um, so if you're on a lower budget, Leicester, it, it's a country that gets overlooked, but we would really recommend. Oh, absolutely. That's a great one. Thank you. Finally, then. Chapter eight is what's at the top of your wish list, your bucket list destination. <laughs> the place I feel really calling me back that's at the top of my bucket list is Australia. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to return to another of my obsessions, which is Sir David Attenborough. Uh-huh. I'm really fascinated by his early career. So one of my favorite individual TV programs ever broadcast, um, you'll find if you have access to BBC iPlayer, you can go in there and they have a whole Attenborough archive. If you just search under Adventure Attenborough, it'll get you to this collection, which he's curated. And one of the shows he's put in there is called Quest Under Capricorn, which was a TV series he made in 1963, or was broadcast in 63, about him driving in a Land Rover around the Northern Territory of Australia. And I'd love to follow in his tire tracks if you like um to go out to this still extremely distant place it's just something about the dust the color the time um uh, he there's an episode called hermits of borolula borolula is is a town you can still visit and really at the time david attenborough went there it was a ghost town so in victorian times cattle stations had been starting up uh, in the Northern Territory, and this town was at that time in a convenient location um, for the cattle to be shipped in. But when that industry fragmented and cattle stations were set up hundreds of miles apart, then the reason for that town existing disappeared. And uh, it was a fairly sizable town. Um, you know, it had a big library, for example. It, you know, it had lots of shops and lots of people travelling through. Um, but eventually it fell apart. And at the time that David Attenborough went there, there were just these three Western hermits, if you like. I mean, there were always Aboriginal people living around that, but in terms of outsiders coming in, there were just these three guys left who were remnants of that time. And so Attenborough went in search of these people. Yeah. And one sequence that really haunts me from that show is there's a guy who was said to actually be a, a British aristocrat, who'd found his own, he'd, he'd been an actor, but now just wants to have no contact. So he lived by a billabong in this shack and he wouldn't allow himself to be filmed, but he's a, a virtuoso violinist. So you just hear these amazing recordings of him. He just plays his violin all day. Wow. And you hear this beautiful violin music and see, you know, the wildfowl on this, on this lagoon and the, the eucalyptus trees and the desert environment all around that. And, and for me as a sort of gregarious person who works for this 
strangely named brand Lonely Planet, you know, which is sort of slightly ironic. Um, uh, but, you know, to have that thought of actually traveling somewhere where I might be alone on my own for a period of time. I never travel like that. Yeah. Uh, but to go to somewhere where I will be far from other people, this tiny remnants of a town, a 250 miles drive from the next settlement. And um, for me, that would be pushing my boundaries of adventure as far as I possibly could just to spend a few days entirely alone in the desert. Yeah. So... I don't know if I'll, well, <laughs> how be I'll doing cope it. with it, yeah. but uh, I feel I should try that one day. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, thank you so much, Peter. Those were your travel diaries. What a pleasure. Thank you so much, Holly. That was Peter Grunert, the group editor of Lonely Planet magazine. I've included a list of all the destinations that Peter mentions in this episode's show notes. You can find Lonely Planet magazine in all good news agents each month and head over to their Instagram at Lonely Planet Mag for all the travel inspo you could ever need. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please tell your friends about it. Make sure you subscribe. And if you wouldn't mind leaving a review, that really helps other people to discover the podcast. And come and find me on Instagram. Say hi. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. Thanks so much for listening. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.